One of my personal heroes of faith was Ravi Zacharias. Many of you have known his story. You've heard him teach. You've heard uh, his ministry on many platforms. Uh, He was for over 48 years, uh, one of the most stimulating intellectual thinkers of our time who defended the Christian faith and offered Christianity really as the only worldview that has sufficient answers to the existential questions of our day. He had traveled to over 70 countries and written over 26 books and impacted millions of lives by pointing people to the defense of our faith. In 2020, uh, Ravi Zacharias died of a spinal cancer. And Sace and I were watching the service thinking, wow, what an impact he has made in the world. And yet we thought he finished so well. There was a desire to God help us finish that well, because especially Ravi, who grew up in South India, born in South India, men like me and young boys like me grew up wanting to have an impact in the global world like Ravi did. And then it was just a few months later that three women came forward with allegations against Ravi Zacharias of sexual harassment and horrible things that he had done to them. So this led to a series of interviews and a private investigation that uncovered a lot more. And it showed that all of those accusations were actually true, but even worse, that his behavior was worse than what they thought was true. That women all around the world had been deeply, traumatically wounded and hurt in unthinkable ways. So in those moments, you feel for the victims that have been wounded and traumatized, and you feel sort of angry and betrayed that a world-renowned Christian leader that you trusted and that you sought to be an incredible human being and servant of God could do so much harm. And what was so devastating was that his conduct didn't match his message. Like it was so inconsistent with the gospel he preached and the message he believed in. And my little world was wrecked because I realized my hero was actually a hypocrite. Hypocrite. When uh, I tried to get Stacy to date me, it took me like four years for, to convince, for me to convince her. But I just kept walking around the wall of Jericho until eventually the guards came falling down, man. It worked. But part of her hesitation was that I was going to be a pastor, and she wasn't sure if she could trust a pastor. She had seen people around her, friends in her life, be hurt and wounded by Christian leaders. She's not alone in that. A survey in 2017, a LifeWay study, said that 66% of those within the age of 23 to 30, 66% leave the church for at least one year. 23 to 30 year olds leave the church for one year. Some of them return and some of them don't. And one third of those who left said the reason why they left church for at least a year is because of the hypocrisy they had seen in church. They said it's a hypocrisy and the judgmental nature of the church that made them leave. One out of 30, one out of 10 Protestant believers under the age of 35 said they left their church, whatever their local church was, they left their church because they saw that the church did not seriously deal with accusations of sexual misconduct, sort of hid it under the cover, and the church didn't take enough action, so they left the church over that, rightfully, rightful reasons. See, these people didn't leave the faith because of Jesus or the gospel. They left the church, not faith, they left the church because they saw Christ followers who weren't living like Jesus, 
They saw inconsistency in the lives of those who preached the message of Jesus but lived out their own truths or their own message. They saw churches protect the powerful rather than standing up for the vulnerable. And some churches, not all, but many churches, some churches across history have stood on the wrong side of God and on the wrong side of the Bible on many things. Most churches at that time championed slavery and segregation, though the Bible teaches equality and justice. Many churches have neglected the poor and vilified immigrants. Though the scripture teaches that we are to be generous and hospitable. Those in the LGBTQ community have been wounded by churches, not because the churches or that church or a church took a biblical conviction, but because Christians were mean and ugly. It wounded them. Churches have often cited so loyally to a political leader, even at the cost of the way of Jesus and the values of Jesus. We often put our preference over people a tradition over truth. We've stuck with opinions rather than the gospel. So it's understandable that people have been wounded by churches. I think at the root of it, what leads to hypocrisy in the church is simply the fact that church people are people. But we can start there. Church people are people. And you know this to be true. People are messy. You're messy. I'm messy. Like there's things about me that I don't like. Things about you, you probably don't like. Things about you, your wife or husband doesn't like. Like people are messy. And guess what? Pastors are messy too. They're people too. Right? We're all equally people. <laughs> and we've got our struggles and our issues that we wrestle with. People, church people, honestly, so when, when, I think when people say, I've been hurt by the church, what they really mean is I've been hurt by people who happen to belong to our church. Because at the onset, we're all people. Just think about in the New Testament, the church in Corinth, just a few decades after Jesus ascended to heaven, you've got this amazing church. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth in first Corinthians. He says, this is a church of saints. You are saints in Jesus. And Paul even says, you've been enriched in every way. You have every spiritual gift functioning in, you know, you read that and you think if there was ever a perfect church, that's the church. Every spiritual gift is happening. They've been enriched in every way. What an amazing church. And then you start reading the letter and it gets scandalous. I mean, there's all kinds of issues. You've got misuse of spiritual gifts and worship services are in chaos. You've got division and factionalism. You've got vile sexual immorality. Specifically, a young man engaged in sexual relationship with his father's wife. We can all agree that it's not okay. <laughs> got abuse. You've got church members taking each other to court. Lawsuits in the church. Chaos, division. And even believers who are now denying just a few decades since the resurrection of Jesus that believers will be resurrected after they die. This is just a few decades since Jesus went to glory and the church is already in a mess. Why? Because every church has people in it. And people are messy. Church people are messy. It's a harsh reality, but I think it's true that church hurt may actually be unavoidable or inevitable because every church has what? 
people. Every church has people. And you've heard this before. If you find a church that is perfect, like everyone's wearing halos and they've got it all figured out, they're pristine, do yourself a favor and do them a favor. Don't go. (laughs) Because you'll mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. We bring the imperfections with us. Right? So we are people. We've got struggles. And though we are saints in Jesus, every day Jesus is transforming us into his image, into his likeness. He is, by the power of the Spirit, overcoming the nature of our flesh. And that's a work in progress until we get to heaven. We always have stuff that we struggle with. But somehow in the church, our struggles lead to hypocrisy. And that's a different thing. Our struggles lead to hypocrisy. And I think it's because in the church world, we tend to hide our sin, then be honest about our sin. We conceal it rather than confess it. And that at its root is hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from the world of Greek drama. It comes from the the Greek verb uh, hypocrisy, which means to pretend or to play a part. See, in Greek theaters, they didn't have all these different costumes like we have today, but they had masks. And a character or an individual would put on a mask to play a role, to assume a persona, to play on the role of a character. And some individuals played multiple roles. So they had multiple masks. They would just interchange between based on the role they were playing. It was pretending to be the mask. That's why hypocrisy has come to mean to pretend to be someone you're not. Somehow in the church world, we, feel, we see the struggle inside of us. We feel the pain inside of us. We see the sin issues inside of us. And rather than bringing it to the open, bringing it to the, out of secrecy and keeping it in the dark, what we're doing is putting on one mask after another. And we rotate through a mask and pretend and conceal and pretend like it's okay. And soon we don't really even believe the real version anymore. We've come to believe the pretend version of ourselves. We've done a good job of hiding behind so many masks. In the New Testament, the Pharisees were a great example of this. The word Pharisee literally meant separate, to be separate. And Pharisees were seen to be a group of people who were separate from others, meaning they were more devoted to God's law, to godliness, than the sinfulness of the masses. They were to be more separate and devoted to God. But over time, even Pharisees realized, man, it's hard to do that. We fall short of godliness. So rather than dealing with their unrighteousness or the wickedness in their heart, they just pretended. They actually pretended to be more righteous than others to conceal their unrighteousness. And they would judge others based on who they pretended to be. That's what hypocrisy does. We forget who we are and we have a mask of who we think we should be and we judge others based on that. Jesus in the gospel, he was so patient and so kind to sinners, to lost people, to hurting people, but he had no patience for hypocrisy. He talked about it often. In fact, Jesus condemned the hypocrisy among religious leaders. He did it. At least 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus calls out hypocrisy. So if hypocrisy is what's caused you to walk away from church, you're in good company. Jesus hates hypocrisy too. He called it out because he knew that it would be hypocrisy that would serve as a barrier from people recognizing their need for a savior and the grace of Jesus. So he time and time after again called it out. Just listen to these few verses from Matthew chapter 13 of Jesus calling out, sorry, Matthew 23 of Jesus calling out the hypocrisy among Pharisees. Matthew 23 verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. 
Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do. Isn't that a horrible thing when you have to say, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Jesus says, don't do what they do. Why? Because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up every, I'm sorry, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is saying, hypocrisy sets expectations on others that you yourself will not meet. Jesus goes on in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven, in people's faces. May that be never true of you and me. It says, woe to you who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when, it, when he becomes one, you make him tw- twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus was not mincing words here. Saying hypocrisy prevents people from knowing God because hypocrisy places burdensome rules and stipulations and regulations that prevent people from following God, entering his kingdom. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without regretting, without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and gulp down a camel. He said, it's good you pay a tenth of the resources, that's good. But you've majored on the minors, and you've minored on the majors. You've forgotten what's more important, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Verse 25, what do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he's a deep breath. Jesus is saying, don't just put makeup on the outside when you're rotting on the inside. It doesn't matter what you pretend to be. All that matters is who are you really on the inside? Jesus was not going to build his church on the backs of people who are simply pretending. That's why Jesus would then choose 12 men, ordinary men who knew they were flawed. People who knew they were sinful. He would choose women who knew they needed the grace of God and it would be on the backs of those honest people in need of grace that Jesus would build his church Because Jesus is not interested in a pretend church. He wants a pure church. Not in a pretend church, but a pure church that recognizes our need for a savior and comes running to Jesus to be our only savior. He wants a pure church, not a pretend church. See, the opposite of hypocrisy isn't perfection. It's honesty. The opposite of hypocrisy isn't perfection. It's honesty. Listen to the words of Solomon in Proverbs 28. Verse 13, Proverbs 28, 13 says, the one who conceals his sins will not prosper, 
but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. If you conceal it, you won't prosper because sin grows in the dark. It festers in the secret places. If you conceal it, it'll eat you up. But if you confess it, you'll find mercy. The path to victory is through confession. The way to healing is through honest, remorseful, agreeing with God about our sin and bringing it out into the open and actually saying, I agree. I am wretched on the inside. I need a savior. Write this down if you're taking notes. Concealing our sins leads to hypocrisy, but confessing our sins leads to healing. Concealing our sins and our struggles, that's what leads to hypocrisy. That's what keeps the mask on, and they need to keep the mask on forever. But confessing our sins is the removal of the mask, and it's confession that beautifully and powerfully leads to healing. It's easy for us to point the fingers at the Pharisees and at Ravi Zacharias or other people or even an institution like the church. But I think at some point we've got to ask ourselves, am I pretending? What am I pretending about? Am I pretending to my spouse, my coworker, my neighbor, my kids? Who or what am I pretending to be? And have I worn the mask, multiple masks so long that I've actually forgotten what I'm really like? See, Jesus wants your honest self, not your pretend self. He wants you as you are because he already knows you. He knows the depths of you. He knows who you really are. But he also realizes that the only barrier that keeps him from doing the work he wants to do in your life is hypocrisy. It's denial. It's a lack of admission. It's a lack of confession. And he says, if I can just get to the barrier of your pretense, of my pretense, of our pretending, then I can do the work of healing and transformation and giving you the grace you need and the mercy you need. But for that to happen, you've got to help remove the mask. You've got to allow me to see you as you are, because I already do. But offer yourself as you are. He wants your real self. So in the midst of our hypocrisy, what do we do? We run to Jesus. We rush to the cross. We rush to Jesus. And we confess boldly. We confess honestly about who we are and our need for a Savior. And we see him there having already paid for our sins and our struggles. Promising us, promising us resurrection, victorious life in Jesus alone. I love how R.C. Sproul put it. He said, we have to find in Christ, not a mask that conceals our face, but an entire wardrobe of clothing, which is his righteousness. Indeed, it is only under the guise of the righteousness of Christ received by faith that any of us can ever have hope of standing before a holy God. And I love this next part. He said, to wear the garments of Christ in faith is not an act of hypocrisy. It is an act of redemption. We rush to Jesus. We rush to the cross. We see him hung on a cross, hanging on a cross, offering us his righteousness. And we say, God, I'm taking off my whole mask and putting on the whole garment of Jesus. I'm putting my mask down for your righteousness. And when I'm clothed in your righteousness, your righteousness moves me to holiness. It moves me to right living that can only be had when I rush to Jesus and to the cross and there I trade my hypocrisy for redemption. But we don't just rush to Jesus. We rush to the people of Jesus. We rush to the community of Jesus, to the people of God. 
James 5 verse 16 says that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, so that we may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, last week we talked about sin and we talked about 1 John chapter 1 where John tells us that if anyone sins, that we are to confess to God because we have an advocate in Jesus and God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. So John says, confess to God and you're forgiven. But how James puts it is not just confessing to God so that you can be forgiven, but confess it to one another so that you can be healed. See, when we confess to God, we are forgiven. But sometimes God reserves healing until we confess it to one another. Until you're in your small group and say, hey, I got to just bring this out of the open. You're already forgiven the moment you confessed. But healing happens when you share it with somebody. When you take it out of the dark, God forgives us, but it's through the community of believers, through authentic, real community and biblical relationships that we experience healing. See, the irony is that people leave the church because of the hypocrisy they've seen. But the only way to prevent ourselves from being hypocrites is to be a part of a community like this, where you can be honest and loving and authentic with one another. So it's actually a community of believers who walk alongside of you, who walk with you, that prevents us from ever needing to pretend. A community that says, you don't need to pretend, you can be yourself. So what actually keeps hypocrisy on the outside is a real community on the inside. Well, you don't need to pretend you can be who you are. That's why we actually need one another. We don't just rush to Jesus, we rush to one another. Joanne Hummel, Pastor Joanne, she said it so beautifully in our teaching meeting this week. She said, it's easier to other someone rather than to one another them. It's not right. It's easier to other somebody. Well, you're here and I'm here. You're different than me. I'm glad I'm not you. I can't relate to you. And we sort of put people in this other category when the scriptures invite us to not other, but one another. How can I take on your burden? How can I walk with you? How can I move closer to you no matter what you're going through? How can I lovingly, lovingly and humbly walk with you? How can I one another you? We don't other people. We one another them. You've heard the statement, we're not a museum for perfect people. We are a hospital for the hurting. That is what the church is to be, a hospital for the hurting. One of the questions we got online about this topic was, I can't go to church because I feel like I'm a hypocrite every time I do. I can't go to church because I feel like a hypocrite. And I think the basis of that question was, I can't get to church until I've cleaned myself up. Like I still got sin struggles. I still got things that I'm holding on to. And I don't feel like I can come to a church or to our church until I've gotten rid of those things. Oh, but they couldn't be further from the truth. All the more you need to come to church. All the more we need each other because here we together encounter the good news of Jesus. We jump into a community and we walk with each other and we're pointing each other to Jesus and the Holy Spirit does his convincing work in us, his conviction in us and he transforms us. He brings out and roots out the things that we could not get rid of on our own. Don't wait to get cleaned up before you're part of a community like this. Come and let the Holy Spirit do his work in you. We come as we are. And Jesus does his amazing work. God uses the church to communicate his love and to change our life. 
He uses the community, the church to communicate his love and to change our life. He's the one that does the work. We come as we are. I think another side of this conversation is sometimes people have felt wounded by the church or church leaders because someone called out sin in their life. Now, if that person called out sin in your life or in our life and they did it in a mean way without compassion, being totally insensitive, shame on them, that should never be the case. But if someone calls out sin in our life in a loving way, in a caring way, in a compassionate way, in a way that walks with you, that's actually very appropriate. That's actually needed. That's actually necessary in the church because we're all saying we're following Jesus. We're all prone to sin. We're prone to walk away from his truth. And so we walk with one another. And if you see anything in me, and I mean me, if you see anything that's not alignment with the scriptures and the way of Jesus, you got full permission to call it out of me. And call it out in one another. Say, hey, let's encourage one another. Let's walk with one another in the purity of God's word, in the holiness he's called us to. That's actually a part of what it means to walk with one another. So we ought to give ourselves a permission out of love and trust to say, brother, walk with me, sister, journey with me. And if you see something that I'm blinded to, you've got permission to walk with me and to call it out in me. Paul, as he's trying to clean up all the mess in the church in Corinth, he makes a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. In verse 12 and 13, he says, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? But don't you judge those who are on the inside. God judges the outsiders. Paul's saying, I don't have any business ju- judging the outsider. God will do that. But what he is saying is, we're called to judge those on the inside. We're actually called to discern and walk with and even judge those in the family of God. Meaning, if I see something in you, you see something in me, we walk alongside of each other and say, come on, let's grow together. Let's live free of that. Let's pursue Jesus as the best thing. And let's live faithful to his word. We're actually invited on a journey to lovingly and humbly judge one another. Now, Jesus did say in Matthew 7, to the Pharisees, judge not lest you be judged. But what he was saying is you got far greater sins to deal with. So do some self-reflection. Don't overlook your own sins. So the invitation is, as we humbly look at our own lives, we humbly walk with one another to help people walk in holiness and in purity. We're called to accept everyone, but we don't have to affirm everything. We are called to accept everyone, but there are some things as Christ followers we cannot affirm. So we say, let's journey together. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's let the Holy Spirit guide us into the fullness of his truth. Hebrews 10 verse 24 and 25 says, hey, don't neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Why? Because by gathering together, by being together, by worshiping together, we say we're being known by one another. We're, as the writer of Hebrews says, we're spurring on. We're provoking one another towards love and good deeds. And the writer says, as we see the day of the Lord approaching, let us encourage one another. We're saying, man, Jesus is coming back. He's going to be so good when he comes. You'll see him as he is. So don't give up faith. Don't give up truth. Don't give up his grace. Let's encourage. Let's spur one and on towards love and good deeds. We totally have the need and the right to walk with one another lovingly, truthfully, and graciously as we pursue Jesus together. The church is not a me, it is a we. 
Jesus didn't die to save a person. He died to form a people, a community. Not to form a priest, but a priesthood. Not to save a nation, but the holy nation of God. And you can't be a nation by yourself. You need each other. Jesus said, you're the light. So let your light shine. And that's not individual lights. It's a collective light. It is saying, together we form this one powerful community that is an incredible, luminous light to the world. And I can't be the church by myself, and you can't be the church by yourself, but all of us together, we are the church. That's why we say here at Bentry, not welcome to church, but welcome church. Welcome church. We are the church of Jesus, and we need one another. So we rush to one another to live out God's calling in our life. I saw this illustration a long time ago that I would remember. Just imagine if I came to your house and bought you a pair of skates, ice skates. I found the only family in Texas that owns ice skates. I said, hey, happy birthday or Merry Christmas. Here's a pair of ice skates. And you're like, man, look at these awesome skates. They look amazing. You try them on. It's the perfect fit. Or as young people say, it's a cool drip. You're wearing these ice skates and you're like, I'm going to go to Galleria Mall and do all the spinning and twirling and jumping. And you're enjoying yourself wearing these skates by yourself. And you got your phone out and you're taking that perfect Instagram reel. And it's just the right lighting and it's just the right moves. And you're like, oh, this is going to be an amazing pose. So you post it and everyone was cheering you on. Look at how awesome you are at skating. Then I come the next day and say, hey, 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 I gave you the skates, but it's not so that you can go skate all by yourself, but so that you can be a part of a hockey team. Yes, you get to enjoy the skates, but there's a purpose for why I gave you the skates. It's not so that you can have a blast on your own, but so that you can belong to a team and be a part of a community and win games together. It is possible to enjoy skates by yourself. Just like it's possible for you to enjoy salvation by yourself. If you're the only person on the planet, God will come to save you. You can be forgiven all by yourself. You can be saved by yourself. But the purpose of God saving us was not so that we could live all by ourselves. But so that we could be a part of his team called the church. The people that he came to form and together we would spur on each other. Together we would encourage one another. Together we would say, let's do this together and let's go win some games by the power of the Spirit. So if you've been skating that all by yourself, there's something far greater that God has in mind for you and me. By the way, this is in my church and this is actually not your church. This church is Jesus' church always and forever. It's his church that he came to build. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Peter has his revelatory moment that Jesus, you are the son of God. Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And I also say that on you, that I also t- say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus says, I'm building my church, my team. I'm building, this is my church. I'm building My church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The word for church there is the word ecclesia. And sometimes we think the word ecclesia simply means a gathering of people. But it means far more than that. It is far more specific than even that. Ecclesia in ancient times was actually a legislative body of people in Greek democracy. 
It's people who came together, processed laws, and figured out how can we pause, how can we carry out new laws in our society for the flourishing of humanity. It wasn't just a random group of people. It was the legislative body in Greek democracy. And Jesus is saying, I've come to put down an embassy on earth. I've come to establish a place that carries out my law, that executes my desires, my values, my principles in the earth. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came to put an embassy, and just like an embassy, that embassy does not belong to the land that it's in, it belongs to the place that it's from. It doesn't live by the values and traditions and laws of that land, but according to a whole different set of laws and rules, because it belongs to a different kingdom. And that embassy, they're foreigners, just like we are. God's put down an embassy where together, we're brought together. You're here, but you're not from here. So that together as his body on earth, we will pull heaven down, his kingdom down. I think for far too long, we as a church, we've been too concerned with how do we keep the culture of the world out? Rather than thinking, how do we take the culture of heaven out? It's been about how do we protect our church or our churches from the culture? But actually Jesus' mindset, his purpose is, I want you to impact culture. It's not just a defensive because you're on the offense. So it's not about keeping the church safe from the world's culture. It is about taking heaven's culture out of the church and impacting the spheres of where you live and where you work and where you study. It's about how do we take the culture of God's kingdom and infuse it into everyday part of life. You're the embassy of God, not just on a Sunday morning, wherever you are, but you can be that by yourself. It takes all of us coming together. The church is not an institution. It's a blended family. And blended families, like some of you know, are hard. Because you don't have the same starting place. You didn't come from the same life background, but you are now wedded together as a family. And Jesus says, I'm putting this blended family together as this incredible embassy on earth. And when that happens, the gates of hell will not prevail. And the word gates also is a different legislative body. Gates in the Old Testament and some of the new, gates were where you made decisions, where the elders gathered and they passed laws. So Jesus is saying, when the church lives true to her purpose and her mission, there are also gathering rooms in hell trying to execute its plan of darkness and destruction. But as you operate as my embassy, holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven, infused by the power of the Holy Spirit, no gate in hell, no power, no tactic, no, no weapon of the enemy will prevail or prosper because you've got keys to the kingdom of heaven. Just stand with me. This is the church of Jesus. We're flawed. We're people. But as we live honest lives, authentic lives, no longer pretending, no longer trying to be someone we're not, but saying, God, here's who we are. We rush to Jesus and we rush to his community. Something powerful happens. And across history, when churches lived true to their mission and were honest about their flaws, they undeniably became the greatest force for good in the world. It was churches that started hospitals and charity centers and schools and nonprofits 
It was churches that would send kids to school and combat human trafficking and hunger issues and homelessness in their community. Study after study says that it was, it's Christians who attend and are part of a gathering like this that are more generous than any other demographic. Because when a church refuses to be hypocritical, but it's committed to being honest, this is the greatest force that can change the world. Church, we're not a cruise ship. We are a battleship. When you're on a cruise ship, it's all about you and your comfort. But when you're on a battleship, it's not about your comfort. It's about your calling. It's about what is it that God's called me to? What is it that God's called us to? Because you've got gifts that the world needs. You've got passions. You've got ministry. Wherever you are, even online, there are things that God has deposited in you. So that we fulfill the mission of God on the earth and we live out as faithful embassies wherever we are of a different kingdom, of a new king. That's who we are. Would you bow your heads with me? I know that in this room and those of you online, there are some of you who do carry deep wounds from people who have hurt you, people who belong to a church. I cannot heal that, but Jesus can And in this moment, I want to simply ask you what Jesus asked the man in John 5, verse 6. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? If so, Jesus is present right here in this moment. And he's going to heal you and he's going to use the body to heal you. I think part of that is, God, I'm willing to be healed and I want you to use others in my life who care for me, who love me to help me in my healing. And as your pastor and as your church, we're committed to walking alongside of you. Maybe it's meeting us in the prayer room, saying, hey, can I just be honest about this wound in my life? Maybe it's emailing us at pastorsadventry.org, wherever you're at. This is a safe place of healing where you'll be met with grace and truth. So Father, today we just ask for the balm of healing on us that only Jesus can heal. Jesus, you stand with the wounded. You stand with those who have been mistreated by people, even people who claim to follow you. But I'm so thankful that Christianity is not built on Christians, it's built on Jesus. It's built on the righteousness of Jesus, the kindness, the perfection, the justice of Jesus. And Jesus moves towards, he loves, he steps into the stories of those who have been hurt. And he condemns every act of hypocrisy and hatred and evil in the world. So even now you're moving closer to hearts than ever before because there's something about a broken heart that draws your presence. May we here at Bentry, may we live honest and faithful to the design of God for your bride, your church, to the mission of God that you've given us to be a safe place for hurting people. Those who are sick or hurting or broken or wounded would think of us first And when they come here by the way we love one another and proclaim Christ, they will see God among us. As Jesus said, love one another so that people might encounter the Father. God, may it always be the case here. May we have spaces and people where we can so quickly take masks off and deal with the heart issues. As a community, we experience healing together and power together and are mobilized as a body, bringing the values of your kingdom here on earth. So do it now. Do it in us. We love you, Jesus. And in your matchless name we pray. And the church said together, amen.